Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome for tuning in again to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by David Hoffman, a contributing editor and a member of the editorial board of the Washington Post. He was previously assistant managing editor, foreign editor, Jerusalem correspondent, Moscow bureau chief, and White House correspondent for the Washington Post. He's the author of The Dead Hand, The Untold Story of the Cold War Arms Race and Its Dangerous Legacy, which won the Pulitzer Prize. He's also the author of Billion Dollar Spy, a true story of Cold War espionage and betrayal, a New York Times bestseller. And he's also the author of The Oligarch's Wealth and Power in the New Russia. But we're here today to talk about his new book, which is a fascinating book called Give Me Liberty, The True Story of Oswaldo Paya and His Daring Quest for a Free Cuba. David, I'm going to repeat it several times during the podcast. It's Give Me Liberty, The True Story of Oswaldo Paya and His Daring Quest for a Free Cuba by David Hoffman. So I'm here with David Hoffman to talk about this new book about a really important historic figure in Cuba, but also a historic figure globally for the global democracy movement and the human rights movement. So David, thanks for being on Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Thanks for having me. How did you become a journalist? Uh, how did you become a published author? I became a journalist because of Vietnam and Watergate. You know, I wanted to change the world. These were world-changing events, but I soon discovered that a lot of journalism was about the local courthouse, and I got interested in politics. Way back in early 1980, I was working at the San Jose Mercury News and for the Knight Ritter newspaper chain, and all the reporters were lining up to cover the 1980 campaign, and I was the youngest guy in the bureau. So they gave uh, George Bush to a senior guy, incumbent Jimmy Carter got another reporter, and finally, they turned to me and they said, look, we'll give you somebody who's probably not going to make it. And when he drops out, we'll give you somebody else. You know, you're you, you're new and young. So please go out there tonight and cover Ronald Reagan. <laughs> so I covered, I covered Reagan. That first night was the national debate in February of 1980. I covered him all the way through the year. And then in, uh, in 1982, the Post hired me to cover the White House. So I was completely hooked on politics. It was the age of Reagan. There was a huge amount to do. And it was extremely exciting in your 20s to be covering the Reagan presidency for the Washington Post. I mean, it's iconic. I mean, you had one of the, that sounds like one of the best jobs in journalism ever. It was hard to know at the time. It was clear that Reagan was presidency was different and radical in some ways after what the country had been through. But it's also very true in retrospect that it was more consequential than we really understood at the time. And my book, The Dead Hand, is somewhat about that. And, you know, I spent many, many days following Reagan, typing up his speeches, making my own transcripts, checking my notes. I didn't know until much later and really 1986, that Reagan was a nuclear abolitionist. And for six years, I had covered him, and I, I just didn't have a clue. And so later, when I wrote The Dead Hand and told the story about how Reagan had this idea about nuclear weapons, it was very humbling to see that a presidency I had covered so closely still held a lot of secrets. How did you decide to write your new book, Give Me Liberty?, 
the true story of Osvaldo Paya and his daring quest for a free Cuba. Why did you decide to write this and how did this come to you? Dan, you know, I spent a fair amount of time when I was Moscow bureau chief for the Washington Post, moving around, looking at things. And one time I was in uh, Nizhny Novgorod, previously Gorky, and I went to the dacha in the woods where Andrei Sakharov had written his famous essay uh, about convergence. And I got very interested later in Sakharov as a person. And millions of people in the Soviet system saw the deprivation and the lack of rights but they didn't speak out, and Sakharov did. And I was fascinated with the idea of why does one man, he was part of the Soviet elite, he was the father of their hydrogen bomb, why does one person pick up a pencil to write an essay challenging the system? Why does one person stand up against the totalitarian system? And what interested me about Oswaldo Paya, later years I was the foreign editor of the Washington Post, and I had sent a reporter to interview Oswaldo. I knew who he was. But when he was killed in a car wreck in uh, 2012, I had this feeling that here's somebody special like Sakharov, like Havel, who stood up to a system. What makes somebody do that? My feeling about this book was that what I wanted to unravel was what is that little kernel of inspiration and genius that drives one man to stand up? So I think it's a really interesting question. One of the things I was struck by in your book is the amount of terror and how dangerous this was, and how tense this is, and that these are ordinary humans like you and me. He and his wife made a pact when they got married that they would someday work towards having their kids grow up in a free Cuba. That's a big goal. And there's lots of anecdotes about sort of the moments of tension and fear that are really palpable in the book. So it's easy to sit in a comfortable think tank, think, oh, isn't this great? Democracy is a good thing. We ought to support people who are freedom fighters and people who are supporting human rights. This is putting their bodies and their lives and their kids' lives and their spouses' lives on the line, their livelihoods on the line. This is really their social standing. That's one of the things I took from the book is that this is really dangerous stuff that someone like Osvaldo Paya has taken on. You have to realize that Oswaldo Payas spent his entire life under dictatorship. You know, he was born just before Batista carried out a coup, and then he was about seven years old when Fidel Castro came to power. So Paya was not a philosopher in the classic sense of getting his ideas from books. He got his ideas about freedom from the street, from actually living the experience of dictatorship his entire life. And he came to a conclusion, inspired by his Catholic faith, that rights are something bestowed on all of us at the moment we're born, that rights are bestowed on us by God. They're not for Fidel Castro to, to take. This was his central animating uh, lesson from growing up and living in a dictatorship. I also think that this dictatorship had real lessons for him, visible ones. You know, his father's business being confiscated when he was 13 years old, um, being sent to Castro's forced labor camps, you know, being forced out of the University of Havana for his views, you know, protesting the Prague Spring all of these things were very real experiences that prepared him for the struggle for democracy. Talk about the role of the Catholic Church in all this. I mean, he's obviously a practicing Catholic, 
Isn't there the role of the Catholic Church in Cuba is kind of a, a, an ambiguous one? This is a really interesting story because this particular parish in El Cerro in Havana, where Oswaldo got four generations of Piaz had worshipped in this parish church. And at the time he was a young man, there was a parish priest. His name was Father Alfredo Petit. And he taught the young people that the church ought to be a temple of freedom that this place where we are, you should be allowed to speak your mind. This is a place where we should be able to open up. The church ought to be a place of truth. And this lesson really sunk into Paya, and he believed it the rest of his life, that the church ought to be at the vanguard of facing off against totalitarianism. Now, in Cuba at the time, the church was badly repressed. Christians were marginalized in Cuban society, sometimes Pelted with stones walking to that parish church. People threw rotten eggs at the doors. The regime would stage these motorcycles to go round and round during mass to make noise to interrupt the mass. So this persecution and sense of marginalization was tangible and real in Oswaldo's family, provided him with a sense that within the walls, there was a place for freedom. And that forged his ideas that he needed to do something about it. And again, and I emphasize, many, many people in Cuba understood exactly what he did. They saw the deprivations and they felt them. But who stood up? Who actually did something about it? So talk about some of the different movements that he was involved. He's involved with the Movimiento Cristiano Liberación. He has a number of other initiatives. Talk about sort of his evolution of his work. I want to start you, though, with one place that was still in that church. After he left the University of Havana, he was teaching and he was looking for a way, a pathway to express this idea that he had that rights belong to all of us. And at that time, Archbishop Jaime Ortega of Havana said that the human Catholic Church needed to have a re-examination of itself, a kind of a, a national reflection on the role of church and society. And Oswaldo took part in that. In fact, he had been an assistant to Ortega, going around the meetings, taking notes, helping Ortega organize things. And he had high hopes that here again, the church was going to lead, was going to be sort of the bow wave of change, because this is what certainly Father Petit had taught. It came to a giant confrontation. Oswaldo wrote a speech for the conference that was going to end this big reflection. The speech was titled Faith and Justice. And Oswaldo laid out his idea that the church should summon itself to its greatest ideals and be the force for change and for freedom in Cuba. And Archbishop Ortega said, no, you cannot deliver that speech. We will not do that. And Ortega organized a rapprochement with Fidel Castro. Ortega felt that he had to save the church, that its very existence was threatened in Cuba. And unless he did something, basically the church was going to go out of business. So Ortega desperately did not want to antagonize the regime. And Oswaldo wanted the church to challenge the regime. When Ortega said no, that conference was held in early 1986. When, when Ortega said no, Oswaldo Paya decided the church was not going to lead. He was going to have to change Cuba another way. He never gave up on the church. He remained faithful, but he also turned to politics. He was not a, a big muckety-muck. He was not part of the system. You know, he was a medical technician working in hospitals. I wouldn't call him working class. He was like a very able technical guy. Yeah. And he thought, how do I change the system? Well, 
One thing that had caught his attention, and not only him, a couple of other notable people also recalled that Cuba had had a democratic past. And despite the fact that Castro was the overwhelming force, this really this enormous charismatic figure in that period of time, there were people that remembered it from independence in 1902 until at least the Batista coup in 1952, that there had been a Cuban republic that aspired to democratic values. In 1940, after much turmoil, Cuba had adopted a democratic constitution. And in the book, I tell the story about the writing of that constitution and how this country had actually pulled itself up by its bootstraps after experiences with dictatorship to come up with a democratic constitution. And one provision in that constitution was that if citizens decided to take matters in their own hands, if they, 10,000 people, signed a petition, they could present it to the legislature for action. And this idea of the citizen initiative was in that constitution. Again, in the book, I describe how that was done. Later, Fidel Castro, when he came to power, interestingly, he tore up that constitution mostly. He did not rule by constitutional rule, but he neglected that provision he left it in the Constitution. In 1976, the Constitution was rewritten to comply with Castro's socialist ideology, but he left that provision in the Constitution. And so Oswaldo Payot decided, look, I think we have to change the country, but I have kind of an idea. Let's use the law of the state against itself. Let's use that provision for signatures, for change, for a citizen initiative, to cause change. It's very important that Paya was deeply influenced by the example of Lech Walesa and solidarity. You remember the communism fell in Poland at the round table where Lech Walesa uh, gradually over many years, it wasn't quick, it was hard work. Also, Oswaldo Paya saw the Polish model as something that might work in Cuba, but it didn't because Fidel Castro was not gonna let go. and. He was very afraid in, by 1989-1990 of what had happened in Tiananmen Square. Oswaldo also felt that we can't have change if we have blood running in the streets. He was worried sick that this effort to change Cuba was just going to result in chaos. So with the vision of Lech Valenza, with the fear about Tiananmen, with the history of a constitution that provided for a citizen initiative, Oswaldo went out to collect signatures. That's what he did. But at the beginning, didn't really tell people for what. He had kind of a one-page handbill with some very gauzy and vague ideas about a national dialogue it was modeled after the roundtable of Lech Valenza. And he got a couple hundred signatures, but not very much. In other words, he was out there testing. After a year, the government came after him. They raided his house, broke it down. They wrote graffiti all over the walls. It's called an acto de repudio. It was a government mob to try and push back at him. He didn't quit. He picked himself up. He kept trying again and again. And this is the great inspiring part about this story. Oswaldo Paya 
had been thinking about this for a long time. This guy was very, very determined. He didn't allow himself to be discouraged or to quit. After the attack on his home, he still thought he would collect signatures. He wrote a 46-page transition plan for Cuba. How do we get to democracy? Single-spaced with all kinds of little decimal points and, you know, provision six and all of that, and it didn't work again. People were tired and hungry in the early 1990s in Cuba. They were exhausted. It was the special period. The Soviet Union had collapsed. And Payab got no traction with that either. And he kept trying these different ways to mobilize people. Fidel Castro had always been the mobilizing force, right? He was the maestro of the millions of people in the square. Fidel would not tolerate somebody else doing that. But Oswaldo Payab knew that people were unhappy, that they wanted something different than the Castro dictatorship, and he just had to find a way to do it. By 1996, he found it. He came up with the idea that it should be simple. Five requests for democracy, right? Free elections, a free press, freeing of political prisoners, a new electoral code, free enterprise. And he created a new petition, and he called it the Varela Project. And he asked people to sign this petition with their names, addresses, and with their ID numbers. And again, this was not something that happened quickly. It took years. But by 2002, he had collected thousands of signatures, and he presented it to the legislature in May of 2002. And Fidel Castro threw them in the trash can. It's amazing. And think about what kind of danger he was putting himself in. And think about what kind of danger all the people who signed the petition were putting their, themselves in. But then he collected 35,000 signatures and ID numbers. He verified them all three times. There was an effort by state security to corrupt the effort. Again, they were always on his case. They were always after him. And uh, Oswaldo and his associates discovered that state security was creating fake signatures. And Oswaldo went back and with his people. And he created these committees in every town, and they verified every signature over again to make sure that they had valid signatures. He presented 11,020 signatures in May of 2002 to the legislature. Every single one of them was somebody who was ready to stand up. The, the fact that you know he was killed very likely by the Cuban regime in a, in a very suspicious act. And he was killed in a suspicious accident that I think many people ascribed to the Cuban regime. I think maybe that's a, a way to describe it. Talk about that and the aftermath of that. Dan, this was not an accident. It was a car wreck, but I think it was deliberate. In July of 2012, Oswaldo was traveling to Santiago de Cuba in the far east of the island to do some training and to really continue the work he had started with the Varela Project. In the decades since that petition was submitted, 75 people have been arrested. Many of them were his associates. Some of them were given long prison terms of more than 20 years for simply collecting signatures. And Oswaldo didn't give up. Even though everybody around him had been arrested and thrown in prison, he kept working. He kept trying. He kept coming up with new methods. So this was a day in which he was going to go on this long trip. It was dangerous because he knew state 
state security will be hunting for him. In one way to make a clandestine trip like this, he had two foreigners to Cuba to actually to help him, one from Spain and one from Sweden. These young men had come with an interest of driving Oswaldo and helping him out. So in a car driven by these tourists, the foreigners, he hoped to stay one step ahead of state security. And they left very early in the morning on July 22nd, 2012. When they were near Bayamo, maybe 11 hours into this trip, they had been followed at least twice by state security. But when they were near Bayamo, they were rammed from behind by a car that appeared to have state plates on it. And the Spaniard who was driving the car, Oswaldo was in the back seat. The Spaniard was driving, lost control of the car. The Cuban state version of what happened is that the driver was speeding and it was his fault and the car hit a tree and Oswaldo was killed. I don't think we know all the details of what happened that day, but this much we do know. The car was rammed from behind. It was a deliberate act. And when the Spaniard was later put on trial for reckless driving and vehicular homicide, he was accused of, of driving recklessly on that road, but no mention was made of the car that hit them from behind. It was whitewashed out of the trial. We know that by nightfall that day, Oswaldo Paya was dead. Exactly what happened, there are still a lot of questions. But there's no question that somebody deliberately rammed them from behind. It's unbelievable. Oswaldo's legacy is still something that has important ramifications for today because it's been 10 years since he died. It's been 20 years since he presented the Varela Project. When Oswaldo presented those signatures... You have to remember, he gathered them door to door. He had no means of mobilizing the Cuban people. He had no internet. There were no cell phones for Cubans in that time. He was denied any access to radio or to television or to the print press in Cuba. He had nothing but door to door shoe leather. And he was managed to get those 35,000 signatures because the idea of what he was talking about, that people have a right to rights, that was the animating thing. And to this day, now there are different methods for people to communicate. Cubans now have smartphones and they can see Facebook. There are different ways, but they're still very much in the same boat they were when the Varela Project signatures were collected. They have no democracy. David, are you optimistic about the future of democracy in Cuba? It's a tough question, but I am optimistic about one thing. People have lost their fear. And these latest demonstrations we see in Cuba, the ones last year and the ones since, including this week, Cubans are out now on the streets periodically demanding change. And, you know, there have been terrible electric power blackouts in Cuba. There are food shortages. There's a lot of deprivation. The system is not working. And when I see these people marching, they are holding up their thumb and their forefinger in a big L for liberation. And that is exactly what Oswaldo Paya did 20 years ago and 10 years ago. They remember this particular signal and his ideals. And, you know, and his effort to collect this Varela Project signatures were at a different time when he had to be very clandestine and careful. And now a lot of this is bubbling up into the streets. That's something to be optimistic about. The Cuban people have lost their fear. And technology is different, too, from 20 years ago, the cell phones and the, the, the social media. 
Yeah, the big event last July 11th when 100,000 people took to the streets, shouting Libertad, was largely sparked by a Facebook Live video from a small town outside of Havana where people were protesting. And just this week, there was another protest in a town in Camaway province. And again, you know, videos emerged very quickly and people all over the island could see what was happening. And so I think Oswaldo's days of a pencil and a citizen petition may be passed, but his ideals are still very much alive. Azuel Payar is a historic figure in Cuba and is going to be remembered as a historic human rights fighter globally. And I think he's a martyr for human freedom. And so I think it's an important book that you've written, David. And I think it's an important contribution because I think he deserves to be remembered. And I think he will be remembered. There will come a time, I hope, in both of our lifetimes where there will be a democratic Cuba and there will be a time where his memory will be properly honored. And so I think this book, this English language book was important, David, to get in English. He's known in the Spanish speaking world, but I think this was really important to have an English language version of this book. So thank you for doing this and congratulations. Has it been translated into Spanish? Uh, that's next, Dan, and we I hope it will be. It'll take a little while, but that's the next step. Right now, I would just ask people to read it in English, you know, get the word out. So Give Me Liberty, the true story of Osvaldo Paya and a steering quest for a free Cuba. David Hoffman, it's really tightly written. It's gripping. It's got some really interesting historical context, as David was talking about. Some of the stuff I didn't know about, things like the Platt Amendment, which David talks about in here, and are kind of interrelated relations that, you know, in some ways were complicated things for Cuba you lay out here, it's really interesting. The thing I'm taking away from the book is how dangerous this was and how risky it was, but also that people were so willing to risk their lives for things that we often take for granted. So thanks, David, for doing this. Thanks for coming on Building the Future with Dan Rundy today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 